we had uh, come as far as verse 28. And this chapter, you know, they've been up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John with Jesus. And they heard the voice of the Father speaking uh, to them. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him or hear Him. And then they came down from the mountain and they encountered this chaotic uh, scenario where a young man was uh, demonized, demon-possessed, and uh, he would have fits, basically. Throw him in the fire and the water. And, and the disciples who were there, the nine remaining disciples who were, had been there, they asked him, well, uh, the father asked them, would you cast this demon out of my son? And they tried and they couldn't do it. And so Jesus, you know, took care of the situation. And so in verse 28, it says, When they had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And so he said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. So they have this question, you know, they're, they travel back to get in the house and then they're in private. So they can say, What happened? We've cast out demons before. He gave them the power to over, over demons. He sent them out and they, they cast them out. They saw the effect. They had experienced it. Why could we not cast this one out? They tried. They gave it a full effort. They gave it the old college try, you might say. What was wrong? Jesus had already given them this power and sent them out. In Mark six thirteen. it says, they, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So it wasn't something that was totally new to them. But now they were unsuccessful ex- exorcists. That's, that's a sad thing to be an unsuccessful exorcist. Yeah. Why is their simple question? They had expected to succeed. The action was not new. They'd seen the results before, but the demon prevailed, <laughs> not the disciples. And Jesus had included them in his, his statement of the faithless generation. Ouch. <laughs> Faithless generation. How long am I, do I have to be with you? How long do I have to bear with you? So in verse 29, he tells them this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. This is why it, you couldn't do it, guys. Uh, these two reasons. Jesus has been praying on the mountain. We know he went up there to pray from one of the other Gospels. And apparently fasting as well, although Jesus inherently had command of spirits. He humbled himself and took on flesh and blood, but he remained Lord of all, yet entirely submissive to the Father and only doing those things he commanded. The disciples had been neglecting prayer, nor had they fasted. It was so easy for us. It is so easy for us to become distracted from the seriousness of the battle that is going on in the heavenlies and having its effect upon the earth. And we can become complacent in our walk and in our relationship with the Lord. Over in Ephesians 6, Paul writes and tells us, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So he talks about this spiritual battle, this warfare that is going on, that we're involved in whether we 
are aware of it or not, whether we think about it or not, the battle is continually going on. It's the powers of darkness, the rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places, these great powers. And he goes on to, to talk about specifics of that armor. But this is a rather frightening description, this situation we're involved in. These are powerful, dark beings that are intent upon uh, possessing people if they can, destroying people, certainly destroying the faith of believers. We have, all the, we have access to all the power of heaven if we do not neglect that which the Lord has made available to us. One weapon that accompanies this armor is prayer, and another is the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. So why fasting? If you have a modern version of the Bible, your text may only say prayer, not fasting. This is due to manuscript authority decisions that we will discuss in detail when we come to chapter 16. Because in chapter 16, a lot of manuscripts stop at verse 8. They don't carry on to the end of the chapter, and we'll see why the manuscripts that contain that are the reliable ones and the other ones are not reliable. Now, contrary to modern scholarship opinion. You know, this is my opinion. I'm not a manuscript scholar or authority, but I think there are good reasons, and we'll discuss those reasons. We talked about it in detail when we studied John 7:53 to John 8:11, uh, the account of the woman taken in adultery. But that was back in 2018 or 19. Seems fresh to me because, you know, I'm bringing up these things all the time. That message is on our website if you want to go uh, look it up. It's titled, Doesn't That Bible Say or Does It? And that's the question that we have to determine. You can search for that message if you desire to listen to it, review it again. We spent an entire message on the reliability of the text concerning the woman taken in adultery. It is questioned also in many modern versions, that, that account, and there are numerous other smaller passages that are deleted in these modern translations. I think it's wrong and a danger. Many do not fully trust the Scriptures because of these issues. And I believe the Bible we have, based on the Byzantine Greek text, in contrast to the Alexandrian text, are fully reliable. For now, let me give you a brief high-level overview from somebody who is more of an expert in these things. He says, though the, though the majority of known manuscripts of the New Testament essentially agree with the exception of various spelling and transpositional differences, two 4th century copies... Now, they were discovered in the 19th century. Our large, the 19th century, that's the 1800s, are largely responsible for various readings and omissions found in most modern New Testaments today. Now, I do think that some of those translations have, you know, the translations themselves, the parts they translate, are, can give good insight. I'm not saying that the translations themselves are necessarily bad. But the manuscripts upon which they draw are problematic. You're still going to get the 
basic truths of the gospel, you know, and you're going to, it doesn't contain necessarily any heresy, but it does undermine our confidence in the Word of God, or it can. So these two manuscripts are largely responsible for these things. They are the Sinaiticus, which is also called the Aleph or the A. It was discovered by Constantine Tischendorf in 1844 at St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai. And the other is the Vaticanus, or B, which has been in the possession of the Vatican at least since the 15th century and was virtually unknown to the general public until its complete publication in 1890. So when these were discovered, uh, they came to be considered the most reliable texts based on dating methods, not necessarily totally reliable, and the influence of two Greek scholars, Westcott and Hort, who compiled their own Greek New Testament based on these two manuscripts. And so, older is better is the mantra of those who have given preference to these two manuscripts. And there are manuscripts, portions of manuscripts that have been uh, discovered since that are older than these two. They don't necessarily deal with the same issues. So, older is better. If it's earlier, it's better. Uh, footnotes in Bibles will often refer to the best manuscripts in referencing these two. And so you'll find a footnote that says the best manuscripts don't contain this in some Bibles, or you'll uh, find a footnote that says uh, the best manuscripts contain this. And uh, it's interesting, you know, they've, they've moved further and further away from making you aware of these differences. And some of the Bibles that are being translated and used now will actually not say anything about some of these areas. And you won't know unless you look at the verse numbers because it'll go verse 57, verse 59. You know, we'll see some of that at the, end of this, at the end of this chapter. And so, you know, unless you're, you know, most people reading their Bible, they don't really look at the verse numbers. It's only if they're looking something up that they're doing that. And so you may not even notice you're reading and it goes from 57 to 59 and you don't notice, hey, where'd, where'd 58 go? Now, this idea of older is better. It generally makes sense as a concept. That is, there's less time for textual variants to corrupt the text. But it does not consider that these manuscripts may have fallen into disfavor entirely because of their unreliability or their alteration. Or they were better preserved due to the desert climate in which they were stored, but were not necessarily considered reliable. Now, going back to this expert, he says, and this is just a summary. We're going we're gonna to look as much as we can in more detail on that, that last passage at the end of the chapter or the end of the book. But this guy says, so the next time you find a passage omitted or radically changed in your modern Bible, perhaps with an oldest is best footnote and translated from the latest revision of the Greek text, just ask yourself. Here's your question. If God in his providence intended to preserve his word till the end of time, Matthew 24:35, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will by no means pass away. So if God in his providence intended to preserve his word till the end of time, just how in common sense do I think he would do it? Would he preserve it in two manuscripts, veritably unknown until they were discovered 14 centuries after they were made? Or would he keep it 
in a consensus of thousands of texts transmitted throughout the ages until the end of time and our Lord's return. You know, you don't have to be a manuscript expert to look at these time periods and what makes sense from uh, what God has told us. In uh, Psalm chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, This is one of my favorite passages in the Psalms. It says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. So at least from that generation, when Psalm 12 was written, and I would say, you know, he's definitely before, he's promised to preserve his word. Is this not a promise to preserve His Word from this generation? And that is for every generation? Would God in His character withhold the best text from the church for centuries only to bring it to light in the end times? Or does it make more sense that God would allow such corrupt copies to be discovered in the last days to test the faith of men in His Word? And to allow those who do not believe in the reliability of God's word to justify their unbelief. Don't rely upon the testimony of those who undermine trust in the scriptures. For example, this was changed and that was changed, so how can you trust it? Depend instead upon the testimony of the author of the scriptures, who says in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And, you know, that means God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is an undisputed passage in the manuscripts. We can trust this. We can trust God's word from beginning to end. This goes to the character of God since he has told us that he would preserve his word for us and for all. And we respond in faith by believing his words over all others. So fasting, why? One reason would be foregoing the things of the flesh allows us to concentrate on the things of the spirit. Another reason would be an indication to God that we are quite serious about what we are asking him, that is, Uh, This is connected, not independent of our prayers for whatever situation. And many fast for just such a purpose, dedicating a special time to prayer. David Guzik says, It isn't that prayer and fasting make us more worthy to cast out demons. It is that prayer and fasting draw us closer to the heart of God. And they put us more in line with His power. They are an expression of our total dependence upon Him. As we said, Jesus has already given them authority to cast out demons. We quoted Mark 6. Back in Mark chapter 3, it says he appointed 12. uh, Verse 14, he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. So this is not at all something new to them. Wearsby says, yet the authority that Jesus had given them was effective only if exercised by faith. But faith must be cultivated through spiritual discipline and devotion. The total dependence on God is the remedy for many spiritual problems. One is said to be disappointed in yourself is to have trusted in yourself. 
Our faith and trust must be entirely in God, not in anything of the natural man or the flesh. In uh, Matthew 17:20, in Matthew's account of this whole incident, Jesus tells them, you know, they say, why not? He says, because of your unbelief, faithless generation. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, there are other factors besides faith. You know, faith includes God's will. So, if God doesn't want to move that mountain, it doesn't mean, mean if you believe hard enough that it's going to move, that it's going to be moved. Our faith has to be in line with what God has said, what God's will is. So, in verse 30 then of Mark 9, it says, Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. They were afraid to ask Jesus quite a few things. So they passed through Galilee. Jesus doesn't want anybody to know his presence, his awareness. He's, this is actually, he's starting on his last journey to Jerusalem where he will go to the cross. And he's begun to tell them these things just recently. Um, he's waiting upon the Father for his timing and uh, his hour had not yet come. This is John the Apostle's explanation. As he often pointed out, they couldn't take him because his hour had not yet come. And so he teaches them for the second time uh, about his coming, betrayal, crucifixion, burial, resurrection. It was back in Mark 8.31 where he first spoke to them. He began, this is after Peter's confession that he's the Christ. It says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And that just, they didn't, didn't get it, didn't understand it at all. They, uh, he speaks to them about it again here, gives them the outline. Uh, the second time, but this is actually the third time that he's spoken to them of the resurrection back in Mark 9, uh, 9 and 10 as they were coming down from the mountain. He told them, don't tell anybody about this until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And so they understood what Jesus was saying and began to discuss among themselves, what does rising from the dead mean? Because, you know, he talks in all these parables and confusing things that he says. So they still lack understanding. The statements are very straightforward, but this does not fit their concept of the coming Messiah. In these times, they have been, have been steeped in the idea that the Messiah would be coming to deliver Israel from Roman domination and establish the earthly kingdom promised to the Jews. This promise remains to be fulfilled, has not been negated. In Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, uh, Luke writing, uh, this is a subsequent account to his gospel. It says in verse 1, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So he's presented himself to them, risen from the dead, and gives them many 
incontrovertible proofs that he is alive. They knew him to be dead. And it says in verse 4 then, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This was still in their minds, still their concept. All right, raised from the dead. Good, time to set up the kingdom. Get on the throne. And two of us will be on each, either side. We'll see him talking about that <laughs> in the near future. So, is it time? Is it time? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So, he's, he's got another thing for them to do, as he's going to tell them. So, he doesn't say, oh, that whole kingdom thing, that's been... We, we had to do away with that because, you know, my people didn't receive me. They rejected me, killed me. So just forget about that whole kingdom thing. No, he just says the times and the seasons are not. It's not time for that. This is not the season for that. And that's coming. I mean, it's coming in the near future. We still have some things to go through. It's at least, it's at least seven years off because we haven't entered into the tribulation period yet. And that's the kingdom comes at the end of that period, time of Jacob's trouble. Israel's problem, not the church's. And in verse 8, then he says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is what he has for them to do. He says, don't worry about the times and seasons for that, but you're going to receive power to be my witnesses. And this is the task of the church then. This is the the this is what the church has been commissioned to do, is to be a witness of him. And, uh, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, into the earth. And when Chuck Smith would talk about this passage, he would, he would say, well, depending on where we originate, we might have a different Jerusalem. You know, like uh, his Jerusalem would be L.A. or Southern California, you know, and then Judea and Samaria, you're moving further out into other regions, other areas, and then to the end of the earth. So is this the time for the kingdom? Jesus says no. The promise will be fulfilled at the conclusion of the church age, which terminates in the rapture of the church, followed by the time of Jacob's trouble, as it's referred to in Jeremiah 30 and verse 7. But he says, he says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Very similar to Jesus' statement in Matthew 24 about there's going to be a time of tribulation such as there has never been and never will be at the time of the end. And the earth has known some terrific times of tribulation. But this will surpass them, surpass them all. And then Jesus will return to the earth to rescue Israel from annihilation because they're, they're going to be on the verge of being wiped out when he comes back. Uh, to rescue them at his second coming. So they were afraid to ask him about this. They were afraid of the embarrassment that accompanies not knowing the answer to a seemingly simple question, perhaps. You know, well, if we ask him, you know, we might reveal our ignorance. 
And he, he expects us to know and understand this. So, you know, we better not do that. Uh, Henry Morris thinks they were afraid to ask because they were afraid he meant what he said. <laughs> and some people today may be afraid to read the Bible because God may mean what he says. And, you know, glorious truths in the Bible, grace, reassurance, but there are also these passages about trials and tribulation, chastisements. So then in verse 33, it says that he came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed about your, among yourselves on the road? He asked them a direct question. Now they have to answer, but they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, and he perceived what they were you know, talking about. He says his child in the midst of them. Well, he called the twelve, said, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives One of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not him, or not me, but him who sent me. So he, you know, they're talking about being the greatest. He starts talking about first, the servant, the last, child. The question arises among these guys as to who would be the greatest when the kingdom's established. They're still thinking kingdom. Jesus has just told them once again about his coming death, and they can think only of who will be the greatest. In a sense, this is a natural occurrence given recent events. Three have been singled out twice now, at least, as recorded for us, Jairus' daughter and the Mount of Transfiguration. These three have been singled out to accompany Jesus apart from the others. Surely they, or one of them, is going to be given the top spot after Jesus in the coming kingdom. And so they're probably arguing over this. Well, he took us up there. You guys couldn't even cast out demon, the demon, you know. We didn't we didn't get a chance because Jesus did it, you know. But you know, it's got to be one of us three. But they don't speak up to tell Jesus what they've been discussing. Someone notes that there was an embarrassed silence. It showed that they were ashamed of their obsession with greatness. We see what Jesus tells them here, but this is not the end of the question. In just the next chapter, we find James and John coming to Jesus with a great request. This is over in um, Mark 10, verses 35 through 45. James and John come to Jesus to, to make a request, and, and you know, one of the Gospels tells us mom's really behind it. <laughs> you know, she's a good Jewish mom. She wants her boys to be up at the top. And so James and John come. Are they cutting out Peter? You know, <laughs> who's going to be the greatest? Well, you know, it's got to be us too. Yeah. So in verse 35, it says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus was pretty accommodating when they'd ask him things. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> you know, he, he's just waiting. He's, he already knows the situation. And they said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. That means in the kingdom. We want to be the second and third guys in charge in the kingdom age. 
And Jesus says to them, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, we're able. They don't even know what this entails. You know, He's told them what's going to happen to him. They haven't gotten it. Yeah, but they're like, absolutely, no problem. We can do this. And Jesus says to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the, and with the baptism I'm baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left, that's not mine to give, but it is for those from for whom it is prepared. It's already known now who's going to be in those positions, you know, to the Lord. It's not known to us. It'll be interesting to see who's on his right hand, who's on his left hand. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. You guys think you're better than us? You're trying to get the top spot? We should have all gone to him and let him pick from among us. But Jesus called them to himself and he says to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, for whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So this is after the third time Jesus tells him of his betrayal, death, and resurrection. Uh, Peter, this is this gospel is likely Peter's account, as Mark was his companion, and Peter doesn't mention their mom. She's actually the instigator of this request. But there's a follow-up question over in Matthew chapter 18. At this time, and a little bit later than the point where we are in Mark, it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know, we've been trying to get these spots. You've been telling us these things. So just spit it out, Jesus. Who is the greatest? We want to know, you know. Uh, certainly it's got to be one of us, you know. And Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So once again, he takes a child to himself and uses that child as a illustration. Over in Luke 22, this is even later. This is uh, after the Last Supper. Well, in verse 20 it says, he, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Well, I could see you betraying them, Peter. You know, I don't know if he's told Peter you know, about this denial thing yet. I don't think he has. Or you do it. You, you might do that. I'd never do that. And so the question arises again. You know, they're still thinking in this same same way, the same mode. 
And this is right before the betrayal, the crucifixion. And he says to them again, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. Benefactors is one of the most, you know, new speak terms, I guess. You, you know, you don't want somebody to be your benefactor nowadays because they're going to they're going to exercise authority over you. He says, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And the younger didn't have the rights. Firstborn had the rights. The younger didn't have the rights of inheritance. Let him be among you as the younger, he who governs as he who serves. For who's greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus you know, had washed their feet at this supper. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom. You know, he wasn't he he was looking at their faithfulness. They're following him. They're sticking, hanging in there, and he says, You've continued with me, I bestow upon you a kingdom. Just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, Lord, you didn't really answer who's the greatest, you know. You just said we're all going to be in his kingdom. The throne thing, that's good. We're going to be on thrones, you know. Okay, so we'll be, we'll be over everyone else. Is that good enough? Um, in Matthew 19:28, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, uh, that's the kingdom, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It's interesting that there are going to be twelve thrones. Who will be Judas's replacement? You know, will it be Matthias? Will it be somebody else? Another thing that we won't see till later. So even at the Last Supper, they're still disputing this question. This is a second instance in which it is addressed. What grace the Lord bestowed upon these men as He does and will do with us who trust in Him. Uh, we know this is the second account in Luke because the first account's given in, in Luke chapter 9, which is in the context that we're reading about in Mark uh, 9. So Jesus corrects their thinking, but he does not really rebuke their desire for greatness in his kingdom. He doesn't say, guys, if you want to be great, that's all messed up. Instead, he tells them the path to greatness in the kingdom with himself as the prime example. It's the way of the cross. I am among you as one who serves. David Guzik says, of course, Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom. So when he said last and servant, he was really describing himself. And he accurately expressed his nature. Now, if you're familiar with Gail Irwin's uh, book, The Jesus Style, or some of his uh, teaching sessions on the nature of Jesus, these are out on the servant.org website. And they're worth reviewing. This is this is what he talks about all, all the time: the nature of Jesus, and and this he took the place of the younger, he took the place of the servant, he took the place of a bond slave to the father, and you know he does this certainly as an example to us. 
But he's, just, he's expressing his own nature. He was truly first, yet he made himself last of all and servant of all for your sake, for my sake. He beyond all dispute is the greatest, but he made himself the least. We've read about this before in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He knew that he was uh, third member, second member of the Trinity, however you want to count. That he was there with the Father and the Spirit. It says in verse 7, He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Now he became a man, but then beyond that, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on the earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So God exalts him to the highest place, the greatest place. Yet, <laughs> he remains the same. He's the same today, yesterday, forever. Humility, obedience, death to self. This is the way to greatness. More than that, this is greatness. If you make yourself a servant to all, then you are great in the kingdom. It's not, you will be great. Make yourself a servant to all. You are great in the kingdom. His kingdom is established on service to one another. It's not that you will be great in the future only. You will be great through serving. In Philippians chapter 2, again, earlier in that chapter, verses 1 through 4, Paul writes and says, If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And this is where he begins to say, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's the one we follow. So God doesn't criticize or condemn ambition. He condemns selfish ambition. Will I put myself ahead of others or will I put others ahead of myself? Is it our ambition to be like Jesus? That's an ambition that is honoring to God. In Romans 12 and verse 16, it says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. And then in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 3 through 8, this is the chapter on agape love. Uh, verse 3 says, Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not love, it profits me nothing. He describes love. Love suffers long and is kind after it suffers long. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up or filled with pride. It does not behave rudely. 
It does not seek its own. This is one of the qualities of the love of God. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. Our arguments, should we have any, should be over who is the least. I'm the least, the younger, the more servile. Isn't, wasn't this Paul's attitude expressed when he said, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. We should be telling someone else, you're the greatest. You're greater than me. But of course, this can be the flesh also. There can be a, you know, a false humility, which is really another form of pride. The danger of pride, something we must always be on our guard against. And something that pride, we can be so blind to pride uh, in ourselves and in our attitudes, in our actions. And, you know, the Lord continually pointing out to me pride and, you know, have to humble myself. A fellow named George Rivka, he's an Israeli believer, comes over here for conferences. He was at the uh, Prophecy Conference in Lafayette a few years back. And he comments on this idea and he says, uh, Yet as believers, we often consider ambition to be a bad and worldly thing. But Yeshua said, He, would be the greatest, he who would be the greatest among you must be the servant of all. So think about it. Did Yeshua say we shouldn't desire greatness? No. To the contrary, he recognized desire and ambition for significance and accomplishment. He even affirmed them and gave instruction how to direct these passions. But his perspective required an important reorientation. C.S. Lewis had something illuminating to share about this subject. He said... If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. Hopefully you're not fooling around with those things at this point, but mankind in general. We're fooling around with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Lewis agrees with the Lord that desire and ambition should be intense in the right expression toward the right objective. Some people have great and passionate worldly desires and ambitions for wealth, power, fame, etc., and even these desires reveal an aspect of God's image which every man carries because God is great with great desires so those whom he created reflect this characteristic. The critical element then is not to kill desire as for example Buddhist religion demands but to sanctify it. How? Simply by yoking it to love for God and love for others expressed by becoming a servant. Being great in God's eyes comes from being great like Him and in Him who is the most exemplary servant ever. 
Yeshua said that true greatness is achieved in servanthood. In this light, ambition, passion, and desire under the unction of the Holy Spirit do not serve pride or vainglory, but are expressed in humility, servanthood, and self-giving. Yeshua came from glory and lowered himself from the heights of heaven, and so he taught us how to be great. The awesome paradox that the Son of God, entirely equal with the Father as his express image, became a flesh and blood human in order to die, is the quintessential act of loving servanthood. This qualified him to receive the greatest name above every name. It was not that Jesus abolished ambition. Rather, he recreated... This is Barclay. It it was not that Jesus abolished ambition. Rather, he recreated and sublimated ambition. For the ambition to rule, he substituted the ambition to serve. For the ambition to have things done for us, he substituted the ambition to do things for others. So to be great is to be the servant of all. And we will never surpass the one who was prophesied in the Old Testament as my servant, God in heaven speaking. Back in Mark again, chapter 10, verses 43 through 45 where he says, Yet it shall not be so among you, it's like the Gentile overlords, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Now, the word servant is the one from which we get uh, the word deacon. Uh, deacon is one who serves the body. And so he says, If you desire to be great, become a servant. And then he says, Whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. And the word slave is doulos, which means slave. <laughs> it's a, a bond servant. He can be a slave by choice. That's what a bond servant is. And that was the way the apostles of Jesus identified themselves. They self-identified as bond servants of Jesus Christ. And then he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom is a redemptive price. And giving it for many, he gave it that price. The price is effective for whosoever will believe. So as he takes this little child, sets him in the midst, it says, uh, takes this actual child, and his comments primarily concern a believer and people's response to him or her, uh, not negating the actual child's importance. There's no greater ministry than ministry to children. In Matthew 18, verses 3 through 5, Jesus has said, Surely I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. This is another description of greatness. One must lay aside all self-sufficiency, all pride, all adulthood. There's a incident with Hudson Taylor, who was uh, founder of Inland China Mission and uh, missionary to... Um, I did say China. He was a missionary to China. Uh, Hudson, Hudson Taylor was scheduled to speak at a large Presbyterian church in Melbourne, Australia. And the moderator of the service introduced him in the most eloquent and glowing terms. He told the large congregation that 
Taylor had all that Taylor had accomplished in China and then presented him as our illustrious guest. And Taylor stood quietly for a moment and then opened his message by saying, Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. If we want to do great things for the Lord, it is crucial that we become humble before him. When we realize that we are but little servants of an illustrious master, it is then that God will use us in a mighty way. After all, it is not our agendas, our purposes, our plans that God wants to bless. It's God's agenda, God's plan, God's purpose for our lives that he will bless to overflowing. This again is from George Rivka. Let us humble ourselves, get little before the Lord today, get our minds set on his purpose instead of our own. So our question is, how do we treat the least esteemed among us? Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not him, but him who sent me.